We have covered a lot of ground over these last number of weeks as we've considered family life. And family life takes a lot of uh, different images, a lot of different uh, ways that it can be perceived and lived out. And we certainly have come to realize that. And we've dealt, tried to deal with the reality of family life and what it's really like, not the, not the fantasy, the, the picture that we remember from black and white television Uh, Because that's not really what family is like, and it's certainly not what family is like today. But we've tried not to shy away from the challenges that are in family life. We we talked a little bit about singleness last week, and we've tried to deal with things as honestly as we can. And and today, um, today's message is entitled, When Happily Ever After Isn't. You may have remember reading the stories to your kids when they were younger and and they all seemed to end and they all lived happily ever after uh how do you know that that's fake anybody okay i mean there is a happily ever after but it's kind of way down the road for us we we have struggles and so we want to deal today with the 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 real struggle the real issue of divorce because you've heard it said that that 50% of marriages here in America end in divorce. And and that number has stayed pretty well consistent over the last number of years. It's a sobering statistic when you think about that. Uh, And it breaks down this way. uh, That means there are 41% of first-time marriages that end in divorce. 60% of second-time marriages end in divorce. And 73% of third-time marriages end in divorce. And you add all that together, it's how you get the 50%. Now, those numbers, you go, well, if I added that, that wouldn't work. What you're looking at is, is the, the bulk of the numbers would fall in the first category. And that, so it weighs it a little bit more in that direction. I guess if there's any good news that we could report on this, and is that at least marginally, that number's been in decline since about 1996. The number of divorces has gone down somewhat. And we look at that and we go, okay, well, that's positive news. But then again, we understand that the number of families who are living together outside of marriage has increased. And so uh, it, it may not be as positive as it seems. Here's the deal. And th- this, this stunned me. And this is U.S. Statistics Bureau, uh, Census uh, Bureau, that on an average, a divorce occurs every 36 seconds in the United States. That just blew me away. We, when you think of the big numbers, when you, when you we start thinking of that, it, it doesn't really hit you. But when you think, if you kind of averaged it all out in the course of a year, every 36 seconds, there's a divorce. And no matter how justifiable that divorce may have been or seemed to be, um, it, doesn't, it doesn't happen without leaving wounds and scars on the people involved in it. And so we want to understand that. There are deep hurts and heartaches that come with it. Even if the the divorce itself was biblically justifiable, and even if the person had to escape that situation, their situation was dire, it still doesn't happen without consequences. There's still hurt to be had in divorce, and, and I, can, I can think it would be almost universal if, if we ask, hey, any of you have family members or you yourself been through divorce, and ask yourself, hey, is there pain involved? Not just for you, but for maybe the kids, maybe for other family members. Um, 
the, the dissolution of friendships that sometimes take place because of this or, or maybe what happens in the life of a church because I've, I've talked to any number of people who go, hey, listen, went through this divorce and I felt like my church family just abandoned me in the midst of this. And so all this stuff works together uh, to, that ties in. It's not simply a matter of going before a, a judge and having the, the marriage dissolved. It's not that simple. And if you've been through it, you know that. So we've talked about the reality of family life in the United States, and the reality is this. Divorce is fairly well commonplace in the United States of America. So what's the purpose of today's message? Let me be honest with you up front. My purpose today is not to make you feel guilty if you've personally experienced divorce in your life. That's not why I'm here. That's not my job as a preacher anyways, to make anybody feel guilty. My task also is not to say, well, you know what, because everybody does it, it's not a big deal. That wouldn't be honoring the truth of God's word. So why am I standing up here this morning and dealing with this issue in this series on the family? Well, because here's my role. My role is this, as a preacher of the gospel, my role is to reveal God's truth to you. To open it up and to just put it out there on the table for you to see and to help kind of come to an understanding of what it means. It's then to call you to bring your life in line, wherever you are right now, to call you to bring your life in line with the revealed will of God. And it is to declare that there is mercy and grace when we mess up. And we do mess up. And so that's kind of my role as a preacher here. It's to put the truth out there, put it in the correct context, to call you to bring your life in line with that truth, and to say, hey, listen, when you mess up, when you stumble, when you fall, there's mercy and grace and forgiveness and restoration that is available. And so I've got a few truths that I want to share with you this morning as we go through this, and we'll pull the scriptures in to kind of help us to understand it and to reinforce it, uh, looking at what Jesus has said primarily. First of all, and here's the first truth, divorce is not an unpardonable sin. It's not an unpardonable sin. If you go, okay, well, I don't know what unpardonable means, then go ahead and put unforgivable in your blank, okay? It's not unforgivable. It's not unpardonable. Now, in Mark's gospel, the third chapter, Jesus is having this conversation, and he says this. He says, all sins will be forgiven, the sons of men, and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Now, here, here's what I'm, the reason I'm bringing this up. The Bible only reveals to us that there's one unpardonable, one unforgivable, one eternal sin. That is a sin that has eternal consequences. And guess what? It doesn't say that sin is divorce. It says it's blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Now, we could spend the entire time talking about the the ins and outs about that, of what scholars believe that means. But basically, I've come to the understanding that blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is a a fairly simple concept. It means rejecting the Holy Spirit's convicting work in our lives when he's attempting to draw us to Jesus Christ. We reject that work. We reject the Holy Spirit 
And we call, when the Holy Spirit's bringing that truth to us, that Jesus is the Son of God, that Jesus is the Savior of the world, that, uh, that He is the way, He is the truth, He is the life, and He's the only way to the Father. And when we reject that truth, when we reject that conviction of the Holy Spirit, then we have committed an unpardonable sin. Now, that doesn't mean if we do it once that it's, it's over. It simply means that when we ultimately reject Him, reject Jesus, We've quenched the work of the Spirit. We have blasphemed against the work of the Spirit. And we've called what the Holy Spirit has said is true. We've called it a lie. But that has nothing to do with divorce. And so if you've heard from someone, if you've heard from some other church, if you've heard from some other theology that divorce is an unpardonable sin, that you will live with that forever and ever and ever, then you need to understand that's not true. The Bible only says there's one unpardonable sin that's blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And so we want to knock that one kind of off the table to start with. Here's the second truth. Divorce is not an inevitable outcome. Jesus, in, uh, in Matthew 19, when Jesus is talking about marriage and divorce, he says that um, in, in the instance of immorality or infidelity, adultery, that divorce can happen, that it can be justifiable, that that is cause for divorce when you've had someone who's done that against you, has broken that covenant against you. Paul adds in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 15, that abandonment from an unbelieving spouse is grounds, justifiable grounds for divorce. And I've heard any number of Bible scholars, and I'm not talking about guys way out in, in you know, the left field of theology. I'm talking about solid people who also go through Scripture and come to understand that, that abuse and uh, even d- addiction can be grounds for divorce. And, and that's not what I'm up here today. I'm not trying to, to go through all the nuances of that. And there's plenty of stuff that's out there written that's really good, solid stuff, and I'll be happy to guide you if you need that. But here's what I'm trying to tell you as we take a look at this. There are very few biblical grounds given for divorce. But even when a divorce is justifiable in this way, even when we can go back to Scripture and say, okay, I have permission in this instance because I have been wrong in this way to seek divorce or for this marriage to end in divorce, it doesn't necessarily have to end that way. Because you've had an unfaithful spouse, it doesn't mean it has to end that way. When Jesus was asked about divorce, do you know where he began his answer? Not with divorce, but with God's original intent for marriage. And I think this is important enough for us to see this. In Matthew chapter 19, in Matthew chapter 19, in verses 3 through 6, here's what we read. Write that down. If it should be in your handout as well. But here's, here's what we read. The Pharisees came up to Jesus and they tested him by asking. Now, anytime they're testing Jesus, they're trying to trap him. They're trying to get him to say something to, to fall into their trap. And here's what they ask him. Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And here's Jesus' answer. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said... Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall hold fast to cling to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And here, here's the deal. Before we can understand 
the serious nature of divorce, we have to, excuse me, we have to understand how seriously God takes marriage. God is serious about marriage. And, and Jesus points back, here, listen, I'm going to point you back to God's original intent. This is God's plan from the beginning. This is what marriage is to be from the beginning. One man, one woman committed to one another for a lifetime. That's God's design for marriage. And that's not the only place that we see something like this. Uh, Jesus says that, pulling, pulling again from Genesis, that the two become one flesh. And that's not just most of us saying, okay, that's, there's something sexual going on there. That's only part of it. The two becoming one means God looks at us differently when we've made this commitment in marriage. The two have become one. There's a spiritual union that takes place. This is more than a legal contract. It is, in fact, a covenant. And we try to stress this. Anytime that I am doing pre-marriage counseling or anytime that, that I'm actually doing a wedding, we talk that this is a covenant. It's a covenant that the couple makes with one another and with God together. And so God takes this pretty seriously. God takes covenants seriously. And this is a covenant that we have made. And so we want to make sure we understand the gravity of that. We also understand Paul tells us that marriage is to be a picture for the world of Christ and the church. It is an image that we're painting for the world of Christ and the church. And because God takes this high view of marriage, we too ought to take a high view of marriage. In other words, don't easily quit on it. Don't, don't you know, at the first sign of trouble, bail out. Now, obviously, if there's a husband who refuses to be reconciled, who refuses to seek help, if there's a wife who refuses to reconcile, refuses to have counseling, refuses to do anything, and just says, here, I'm drawing the line, honestly, you don't have a whole lot of choice. I understand that. We all understand that. What I'm trying to tell you is it doesn't have to be that way. There's story after story, testimony after testimony of people who have been cheated on, who have been lied to, who have been deceived by their spouse, who through the grace of God have been able to come back together and create a beautiful picture of marriage after what was destroyed before. I'm not saying it doesn't happen. I'm just saying it doesn't have to. It's not prescribed that because this happened, then divorce must follow. The third truth is this. We've already touched on this a little bit, but, but divorce is not God's design. Divorce is not God's design. Now, I'm going to tell some, most of you are married, so you know this. Some of you are not yet married, a little bit too young to be married, thinking about marriage, whatever it might be. But you, you'll discover this very shortly after you say, I do, and that is marriage is tough. Someone has described marriage as two selfish people learning to be unselfish. We don't learn that easily. It's tough. I've been married now over 32 years. Is that right? Okay. Married now over 32 years. Um, And even now, it can be tough. 
And that's not because Nancy's hard to get along with. It's probably the exact opposite because I'm the one who's tough to get along with. No amens from up there. Okay. But here's the reality of marriage, right? Husbands disappoint wives sometimes. Sometimes a lot. And wives disappoint husbands sometimes. Sometimes a lot. That's just the reality. That's where we live. That's, that's living in a fallen world because we, we, we tend to resort. We go back to that selfish old nature that we had or that time where, where we're trying to defend self and, and we easily get into these arguments. And there are times when many people come to the point where they think, hey, getting out of this would be a whole lot easier than hanging on to it. A lot of people come to that point. I've had people that come to me, and I know, I know what they're coming for. They come to me, and they sit down in the office, and they basically ask, um, when does God say it's okay to get a divorce? Now, what are they telling me without telling me? They're telling me, hey, I'm thinking about this. We're, I'm, we're looking into this. We're talking about this. I'm getting close to the end of that rope. My tolerance level is about had it. So I'm looking for a way out. And what I'd like you to tell me, Pastor, is when does God say it's okay for me to bolt, for me to get out of this? It's kind of interesting because in Matthew 19, that's pretty much what the Pharisees are coming to ask Jesus. Look in verses 7 and 8. And they said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? And he said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. So here's something important. Divorce is not a command. That's what they were asking. Why did Moses command that a man give his wife a divorce? And and it's not a command. It was permitted But it was not permitted because God somehow changed his mind about the importance of marriage. It was permitted, he says, because of the hardness of your hearts. The hardness of men's hearts. That's why it was permitted. Because when God revealed what marriage was to be, when God revealed what your life was to be, when God revealed to you the responsibilities of marriage, you said no. You put your foot down and said, no, we're not doing it that way. I'm not living that way. I'm going to do things the way I want to do them here in this situation. He says, because the hardness of hearts that God allowed this. Now, you need to understand something. Times were a little different back then. Women were considered very little, uh, worth very much, not very much. I mean, a little more than property. And it was acceptable in some Jewish thought taught by some rabbis that a man could divorce his wife if she wasn't a good cook. Now, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands on here of how many of your marriages would be dissolved over that, but if the wife, you know, she just burned water. Okay, that's it. I'm out of here. And it was permitted. I mean, it was said, okay, that's, that's a valid reason for you to divorce your wife. It was even said that if a man found another woman who he thought looked better. And that was grounds in order to get a divorce. Now, 
This is the kind of hardness of heart that Jesus is talking about. You entered into a covenant, you entered into a commitment, you made a promise to someone, and yet because you want something else. Now here's the problem. What was happening before Moses permitted divorce? I'll tell you what was happening. Men were just abandoning their wives, just marrying somebody else. They were doing what they wanted to do anyway. But now the woman, she didn't have any recourse. She couldn't go to the, to the lawyer. She couldn't, she couldn't call you know, 1-800-SUE-SOMEBODY. She couldn't appeal before the judge. She had no standing. Which means she would ever always be considered that man's wife even though he may have put her out, she had no place to go, no recourse. The man could go on and live his life with this new woman he's got. But the previous wife? So Moses said, hey, because you guys are like this, because this is how you think about marriage, this is what you think about what God instituted between a man and a woman, then Moses allowed it. But you need to understand, he says, this was never God's plan. This is an accommodation to you because without it, it would be worse. And so, that's where we get it. Basically, it boils down to this. Marriage should be taken seriously. Divorce should never be taken lightly. But you know, even in the best of circumstances, because some of you found yourself in this place. Even in the best of circumstances where you do take marriage seriously and you do, don't take divorce lightly, even sometimes in those circumstances, divorce happens. And that takes us to the fourth truth of this morning, and that's this. Divorce is a reality in our fallen world. This is, it's a reality. And I guess we come back to where we started, acknowledging the reality of divorce and even its prevalence. It's not God's plan for a couple, but for any number of reasons, it's where many marriages end up. But what we want to understand is the divorce does come with a high price. Now, I'm not just talking about what you have to pay to lawyers. There's a high price there, too. There's a high price when it happens. It's a high price for the wife, for the husband. It's a high price for the kids, for the extended families. There's a high price when it comes to friendships. And as I mentioned, there can even be a high price when it comes to your connection with the church. We could spend a lot of time going through those, but... Let me just give you a couple of things that come out of the same Census Bureau data about children. 43% of children growing up in America today are being raised without their fathers. Now, I'm not coming down on single moms here. Let me tell you something. Single moms, you have your hands full. You've got to be mom and dad. and I mean, you, you've got to be everything to this child. And I admire what you do so much. But I think even as a single mom, 
you would come back and say, hey, listen, I wish that my son, I wish my daughter had a godly man who would bring that kind of influence into his or her life. It's one of the reasons that I chose many years ago to step into the mentor role in the school system because I recognized, I, I went to the principal and said, hey, listen, I'm looking for one kid that I can follow all the way from, from first grade all the way through high school. I said, can you tell me someone who, who that I could fit into that role? And, um, and he gave me someone. And, and I'm not there because I'm trying to be Superman. I, I, I mean, I, honestly, I, I'm not, I don't, I don't have these grand illusions that somehow I can take this guy and meet the need that a father would meet. I, I don't have that. But here's what I understand. There is a huge need in America for men of God to speak into the lives of young men and young women. And you can do that sometimes through mentoring the school system. But I want to tell you guys right now, you know, I know I picked on you on the husband sermon a lot, but let me pick on you again. Of all the things that you could find to do as you serve in the life of the church, none will be more impactful. None will be more impactful than coming alongside Caleb and Kim Cash and saying, how can I invest in the lives of the young people that are in our church, even if they have dads? How can I come along and bring this example and not just allow... And again, I appreciate so much what women do, and I'm not down in women at all, but I just got to tell you, there is in student ministry, whether you're talking about high school, middle school, elementary school, preschool, if you go into just about any church, you will find that the entire thing is run by women. What's wrong with us, guys? Are, we scared? Are you scared of a kid? Okay, yeah, I can understand why you might be, but come on. We've got to step up to the plate, men. We have to step up to the plate and say, I want to make sure that I'm, I'm providing that kind of influence on the generations that come behind us. We already know in society, this is the reality in society, that some little bit less than 50% of the kids growing up are growing up without a dad. You can't be that dad, but you can be an influence. And I thank you men who have stepped into those roles and who are making that sacrifice in order to be involved in the lives of young people in the life of this church and in this community. The other stat was this, that 28% of children living with a divorced parent live in a household with income below the poverty level. And that kind of makes sense. In the in society we have right now, it's almost, it's almost a necessity that that you have you know, two streams of income coming in. You might be able to make it without that, but it's really, really hard to make it without that. And, and so it's understandable that many of these kids who are raised in these households without two parents, uh, many of them are living below the poverty level. Over a quarter of them are living below the poverty level. Let me see if I can land the plane here. Here's a sad truth. There's no easy fix to this. There's no easy fix. 
We acknowledge the reality of what this world is like and the struggles and with, between husbands and wives and the struggles that kids are having when divorce occurs and the struggles that husbands and wives have when divorce occurs. And again, there are justifiable reasons and there are some times where you, need to, you, you can't stay with an abusive spouse. Believe me, I understand this. I do understand it. If you've got a husband or wife that says, I refuse to be with you anymore, I mean, what, what else are you going to do? I mean, wh- you don't have any recourse. I do understand. That's the reality of the world in which we live. It's complex. I'll talk to a husband about a marital situation, and then I'll say, well, listen, I can't just get this one side. I need to, I need to also get the other side. And the amazing thing is, those two stories don't match at all. But that's how they view the relationship. In other words, it's really complex. So what, what can we do, I guess? What can we do as a church? And here's what we can do as a church, and I hope this is what we try to do as a church, that we help couples prepare for marriage. I'm not saying scare them off. But we help them prepare and so I, I want to spend, when I'm doing a wedding, I want to spend time. I've got a, a marriage counseling via Facebook. I mean, we have FaceTime on Monday night because the couple can't be with me. But it's important enough that we go through this, that, that we're doing it using technology to try to go through it, to do what we can to prepare couples for that time when they unite as husband and wife. My kids know this, but I'll tell you this. When they were babies, I started praying for the man that my daughter would marry and for the woman that my son would marry. I started praying. Now, I won't say that I prayed every day, but I prayed consistently that God would bring a a godly woman into Jay's life, that God would bring a godly man into Jackie's life. This is not simply about us as a church and me as a pastor helping prepare people for marriage. You need, if you've got young kids, if you've got grandkids who aren't married, you need to be preparing them because this may be, now they may never get married, but if they are, you want to prepare them for that. To make them the man or the woman they need to be and to help them as they look out to realize that what they see on TV and what they hear in music, that's all fake. That's all fake. That this is not life. Life is not a Nicholas Sparks novel. It's simply not. Life is not the romance movie that you see at the theater. It is not. This is not the Hallmark Channel. This is the real world in which we live with real problems and real challenges. And so we need to begin preparing couples for marriage. We need to be, begin to help families that are struggling to come alongside. Man, I gotta tell you, the first thing I wanna do if I find out a family's struggling, I don't wanna deal with their mess. Because when I deal with their mess, guess what? I get messy. They're sticky. But as a church, we need to deal with the messes. We need to be willing to enter into that and to get sticky ourselves in order to come alongside to encourage and to help 
and provide what we can. And one of the things that we as a staff and we'll be sharing with the elders as we move forward is we want to do what we can as a church to provide for the church family and the extended community the resources they need to help when they are struggling. And the third thing that we can do is when family members, when a family does dissolve, that we don't just wash our hands of them but that we come alongside and we show mercy and grace and we do all we can to restore them and help them know that they're loved and not rejected. What about as individual believers? As believers, if you haven't, it, it, listen, if you're not married yet, then you need to enter into marriage prayerfully and carefully. If, you're, if you've been married and you are considering remarriage, you need to enter into that prayerfully and carefully. There's a reason that statistically, if you're divorced once, then you're going to be divorced again, and you're going to be divorced again. There's a reason. And the reason is, and this is what I've discovered just from observation over the course of years, is that men and women tend to choose the same person over and over again. For some reason, even though it blew up in their face, they go after the same person. I mean, a different name, a different job, a different face. But underneath, it's the same person. And so we need to enter into marriage prayerfully and carefully. We need to work uh, diligently to strengthen our own marriage. If you're married, work to strengthen your marriage. Um, one of the TV shows that was popular when I was growing up was All in the Family with a guy named Archie Bunker who was just kind of a prototypical uh, bigoted white male. Um, lovable. I don't know how they made that all happen, but they did. And, but I remember he was having a conversation with his son-in-law and his son-in-law talked about trying to do things that would strengthen their marriage. And Archie Bunker's response was, why keep running when you've already caught the bus? If you're already married, why work on it? You're there. But I want to tell you, you need to work on it. Guys, you need to work on who you are as a man of God. Women, you need to work on who you are as a woman of God. And you need to work on your marriage. And then the last thing personally you need to do is this. If you are struggling, don't put your kids in the middle of it. There's a lot of collateral damage around. For kids who have to listen to their parents yell at each other, throw things, threaten each other. And these kids are living right on the ragged edge of life, not knowing if everything's going to fall apart tomorrow. It doesn't have to be that way. In short, our view of marriage, divorce, anything to do with family life should never be governed by the cultural norms around us, what's common. Nor should it be governed by our personal feelings and views. In every aspect of life, instead, our desire should be to bring our lives in line with the revealed will of God. How do you find that? I'll give you a hint. God's kind of made it plain. Hiding in plain sight. 
And if we go and we say, God, would you help me to understand this? Then the Spirit of God will enlighten us to come to understand his word and then convict us to put it into practice in our lives. This is how we will come to understand it. We, do, we come to understand this word as we connect ourselves with a Bible-believing, uh, gospel-centered church that can come alongside us and to help us to grow in our understanding of Scripture. God's not hiding the truth from us, but sometimes we spend a lot of our time hiding from the truth. If we want to begin to bring our lives in line with the will of God, then we need to begin to bring ourselves into the presence of God and to ask God to speak to us. And then we need to put it into practice. James tells us that we aren't just to hear the word, but we're actually to do it. Imagine that. Marriage is, marriage is hard enough in the best of times. Family life is hard enough in the best of times. Life itself is hard enough, but you and I can make it immeasurably harder by ignoring God's desires and simply pursuing our own. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for speaking to us sometimes words that are tough to digest, tough to accept, tough to embrace, tough to receive. But I pray, Lord, that the outcome of today will not be people simply feeling guilty, but instead, God, it would be people feeling hope. Maybe it's hope in the midst of a marriage. Maybe it's hope because of after a marriage is already dissolved. But, Lord, there's hope. There's hope, Lord, that you haven't left us. You haven't deserted us, that you still are intervening in our lives. You still are, are, are working in us to bring about something beautiful even when we're standing in a pile of ashes. And so, Lord, I pray that you would bring your word, bring us alive to your word, that you would help us to to read it and, and understand it, and, Lord, that your spirit would convict us so that we could put it into practice and begin to live in line with your will, not just running off and pursuing our own. But, Lord, that's true in our families, but... It's also true in every aspect. Jesus came to not just teach us good things. He came to live this perfect life in front of us and then to die a criminal's death. Even though he had no sin of his own. He came to do that for us, God, and you've revealed that that we come into this life, we enter into that new life through faith in Jesus Christ. It is by grace that we are saved through faith, and it's not something we do for ourselves, but it is the gift of God. It's not by works. So, Lord, the only thing we have to boast about is what you've done for us. 
Lord, I know that there's some who are sitting here today who go, I don't want to accept that. I, I, I don't want to believe that. I, I want to I get to heaven my own way. I want to earn God's love my own way. I want, to, I want to try to make it out of this life my own way. And God, I pray that your spirit now would just bring such deep conviction on those hearts and those minds so that they'd be willing to let go of my way and to embrace your way, God. And that today they might trust that Jesus is the way, that Jesus is the truth, that Jesus is the life. And they would find their way to you, Father, through him. And so, Lord, we ask that you would you'd work in this place, that you'd work in hearts, you'd work in minds, that you'd work in families, drawing people to faith, drawing people onto your plan for their lives. God, do your work right now in this moment. We pray it in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.